I'm here this morning at the home office, so it seems appropriate to break out the Four Oaks mug. Um, reminds me to tell you, we have a very highly underrated line of Four Oaks swag here. Not only do we have mugs, we also have the car decals, magnets, along with some sweet shirts that you would want to take advantage of. And that really has nothing whatsoever to do with our study this morning, but just thought I would throw that out. We are making our way through the book of Revelation um, as John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, God has sent Jesus to give John this vision to record to them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to give them hope for the future. And now we are all the way up to chapter 2, um, into chapter 2, looking at the church in Thyra, Tyra. Say that three times very quickly, Thyra, Tyra. And so let me read Revelation 2, 18 through 29 and pray, and then let's get down to, to business. To the church in Thyra, Tyra, and to the angel of the church in Thyra, Tyra write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you at Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, Dude, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are just like each of these seven churches. We are desperate, needy, and coming to you with empty and open hands to receive mercy and grace through Jesus. Lord Jesus, we believe you have a message to us this morning through your word. And so give us um, ears to hear, eyes to see, and then mouths to proclaim um, your goodness. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said, Jesus, um, John, John, what John has done is record this vision of Jesus for us in chapter one uh, that's full of imagery and apocalyptic um, metaphors to, to, to communicate the attributes of Jesus and who he is and his power and his might and his glory. And then correspondingly then, um, Jesus highlights through John an aspect of his character from this opening vision and applies 
um, a specific attribute of himself to each of these churches that sort of meets their need, that sort of um, speaks to them personally. So we, for example, with one of the churches who is feeling very discouraged and alone and abandoned and isolated from the world around them, Jesus appears as this um, as this one son of man walking around, being present, uh, being among them. It's to remind them that that he's that he loves them, that they're his people, that he has not abandoned them. Well, in the same way as we turn to the church in Thyatira, um, Jesus here is presented as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, in whose feet are like burnished bronze. And and we have to say, okay, well, what is that? What is what is John communicating to us about the nature and character and attributes of Jesus that are particularly pertinent for this church? And one of the things that that we know when we think about feet of bronze, um, the and and the eyes of fire, all of the imagery here um, is evoking one of just this fiery purifying presence so as bronze would be heated up and melted into weaponry or tools or what have you um, they're obviously heating it up not only to mold and shape it but to remove remove the impurities from it and that and that the idea here is that Jesus is the all-consuming fire it's not simply that Jesus sends out fire to purify or Jesus um, um, uses fire to shape, okay, and bring light and heat. It's in fact that Jesus is the fire himself. He is the all-knowing, holy, purifying presence in the life of the believer in the life of the world. So I think it's this idea of Jesus's purity and holiness that John is wanting to hold up to us that 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 nothing escapes his gaze that that he is an all-consuming presence in his glory in his holiness and and this would have been particularly pertinent for the church in Thyatira to be reminded of so what was happening there uh, that sort of evokes this this imagery well we know that Thyatira was 45 miles southeast of Pergamum okay so if you can imagine, um, this circular letter that John has written goes from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira. It's making a big circle, okay, um, along its way. And so Thyatira is next in line. And what's interesting about Thyatira compared to all the other um, cities and churches that, that John is writing to is that Thyatira um, was what we would kind of call, in today's lingo, a blue-collar city. It was a union town. Um, most of the of the people who made their living there uh, did so with their hands. They were part of guilds who either made shoes or weapons or um, you know cloth. Re remember um, in Acts 16 when Paul plants the church in Philippi. It says he went down to the river and to 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 see who was there to share the gospel with them. And there was a woman there named Lydia. Remember, she was a maker of fine garments. And where was she from? Thyatira, okay? So this is a blue-collar town. Um, it's not cosmopolitan. There is, it's not a great intellectual learning center. Um, it is a, um, it's sort of a hub of economic 
activity, production, manufacturing. It's your classic blue-collar, Midwest, steel city, so to speak. But what was happening there, and it was a particular pressure for them, that remember each of these trade guilds had a, had a, had a patron god or patroness goddess who they worship, they, they look to to give their trade blessing. And so if you were a sailor, uh, or someone on the sea, you would worship the god of the sea, which is Poseidon, I guess, or whoever. But for, for them, um, to be a part of a trade guild, I mean, you had to be a part of a trade guild in order to trade, right? You had to be a part of the union in order to, to participate in the work in that area. But to do that, you had to acknowledge, worship, bow down to the trade guild specific god. And without that, you could not buy or sell as a tradesman. Now, this is going to be really important later we're going to come back to this idea of buying and selling and um, which has been given rise to all sorts of prophetic um, speculation um, about the future but we have to understand that that had a real application to the current people in this particular city and so Christians were under enormous pressure in this city to to worship false gods okay to give allegiance to someone besides Jesus Christ and what, what seemed to be happening is that they were very, it was sort of one of these things of like, I don't really believe this. I don't really believe this God, but to sort of escape the pressure of the culture and all those sorts of things, you know, I really don't believe this, but I'm going to just sort of give lip service to these gods. And, and what it created, obviously, was um, just this whole realm of compromise and not to mention hypocrisy, where they were saying one thing, they believed in one thing, but they were practicing another. And this person that um, that Jesus is referencing, Jezebel, we don't know if that's like a real person or if, in fact, that is a um, it's a it's probably it's probably a metaphor um, for this idea that remember in the Old Testament, Jezebel was someone who was trying to lead the Israelites astray. She was trying to get them to compromise by worshiping other gods and um, to to practice immorality. And, and not to deny faith in Yahweh, but just to accommodate faith in Yahweh and God to make room for these other things. And it reminds us, I think, that there are two kinds of errors that we face as believers, two, two, two kinds of temptations as it relate, relates to error um, um, that the church faces. And the first is what we saw last yesterday at, for the church in Pergamum, which is just what we would call false teaching or heresy, right? which really basically means we are teaching um, things that are contrary to the word of God. And this was Paul's concern, for example, for the church in Ephesus when he exhorts Timothy to root out error, to guard the flock, to preach and teach truth over against false teaching. And so there's one kind of error, doctrinal error, we would call it, um, that's, that ends up in heresy. So that was the church in Pergamum. But there's a second kind of error, which I think is probably more of a temptation for us. And this is the, this is what we would call moral error. And this doesn't come with teaching false things or false doctrines, okay? It comes in the form of false practice, okay? And the danger here is not that the church would become heretical, it's that the church would become apostate. In other words, there's never an outright denial of the truths of the gospel or um, the, the orthodox truths of the Christian faith. But what there is, is a falling away, 
right? There is a there is a falling in to moral sin while all the while affirming truth and orthodoxy publicly, but in private, um, not practicing it, okay? And there's this, this sort of rampant hypocrisy. That seems to be what's happening in the church in Thyatira. Um, their, their temptation was not towards heresy. Their temptation was towards apostasy, um, meaning they weren't denying the truth of the gospel, but by their life, their lifestyles, their compromise, right, they were falling away. And, and Jesus is reminding them that he is holy, okay, that he died for his bride. Um, folks, he died for us. And so he, just as you would care for the sanctity of your own children and their growth and holiness, Jesus cares about our hearts and his people in the same way. Now, one of the interesting things that I think we ought to note, okay, is that um, apostasy does oftentimes lead to heresy. And, and here's what I mean. No one, there's sometimes that people come up with novel truths and systems of, of, of theology and teach that and based upon their convictions begin to practice differently, but that's not typically how it works. Typically what happens is that we affirm truth but we begin to make moral compromises in our life. And as we make those moral compromises in our life, our consciences are seared, they are burdened. We know that we're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. And so at that point in time, we either have one or two choices as Christians. Either we confess that and we repent, okay, which is a daily moment by moment process, or our mind goes into hyperdrive and we begin to rationalize what we are doing. We begin to subtly, okay, begin to change our theology um, to, to match what our practice is, okay? And um, so oftentimes this happens, for example, in marriage, okay? We, we, we know what the Bible says about the sanctity of marriage and um, the holiness of marriage and the covenant of marriage, but we can go through marital struggles. Um, our hearts are tempted. They're pulled away from a spouse. They're, maybe there's an adulterous relationship. And um, all the while affirming the sanctity of marriage. And then over time, the heart wants what the heart wants and begins to change theology. Well, well, well God didn't really just mean one man and one woman, okay? Um, God didn't really mean a covenant for a lifetime. And our theology begins to change and shift, okay, to match, okay, our behavior. And that is a true danger for all of us, okay? We always have to be on guard. This is why Paul says, um, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. A lot of times you will find out as, as prominent Bible teachers, and there's a number today, okay, who've come out and changed their position on things um, like sexual ethics and same-sex marriage or, or a whole host of other social issues. And, and it's presented as if there has been this epiphany, this enlightenment. Um, I see the Bible differently. Um, I'm coming to some knowledge, different knowledge of the truth. When in reality, what you come to find out later is that there's always something personal about their drift, okay? There's all, it, it starts off by something that's happening very personally, a disappointment or a child who's, who's um, behaving in a particular way, or a spouse that's behaving in a particular way, and versus confronting that disappointment and holding 
close to the gospel, there is that temptation you oftentimes find out with leaders that it's really a personal situation that's led them to shape their theology, shift their theology to match what's going on in their life because the consequence of not doing so and having to confront it and be truthful about it is just too painful, it's too costly. And this is what the church in Thyatira was, was, was experiencing, and this is obviously where we live, is it not? This is, this is what we struggle with. This is where we are tempted to not fully acknowledge our sin, but in fact to, to, to change our theology in subtle ways, okay, to match, to make acceptable, okay, what we've been doing. And then over time, our apostasy leads us into, into heresy. And this is why Jesus is saying, not so for my bride. I love my bride. I've died for my bride. He tells us in verse 28 here, I will give him the morning star. In other words, the morning star is Jesus himself. Jesus says, I am enough for you. And, um, and I know that the compromises that you are having to say no to come, can come at great cost. But I want you to know, church, that I love you. I died for you. I'm, I'm, I've died for you to be holy, to be set apart, to be my bride. And now walk in that and trust me. And that's Jesus's word to the church in Tharatara. Tomorrow, the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, same time, same station. Let me pray. Lord, this is us. We see ourselves in this text. And we don't want to be ones who have the word of God held up to us. But then because we don't like what we see, we, we want to change it. We want to shift it. We want to reinterpret it. No, Lord, we want it to have its full claim on our lives, and we pray now that it would. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.